Apple is the world's most valuable company, probably one of the world's most loved companies. Its net worth in terms of stock valuation is over $600 billion. Last year, its revenues were a little over $235 billion because we just love our iPhones. It is safe to say that it is a radically different company than the one that was doing final assembly of its products in Steve Jobs' garage about 40 years ago. Today, it operates in ways that they never could have imagined back then. And yet, despite all of the changes of time and technology and business and culture, it still operates on core principles that are pretty clearly descended from three principles that Steve Jobs outlined in 1977. Those principles drove the company to explosive growth in its early years. Then it kind of wandered away from those principles. And then it regained a focus on them, and, and it has driven their growth for the past two decades. If you're under 20, Apple has never been anything other than awesome. It's been a winner for two decades. But there was a time when the company had lost its way. It had lost its focus on the principles. And in fact, if you're a little bit older, it was just 1997 that the company was so close to bankruptcy that they had to beg Microsoft for money to keep from closing the doors. I'm not sure Microsoft is too thrilled about how things worked out in the end, but it worked out well for Apple. And this is an example of the way in which founding principles and practices, when we rightly understand them and we apply them to our changing context, are essential for, for really helping drive an organization to success. How they remain relevant, even as everything else about that organization may change. By contrast, when we lose sight of those founding principles, well, that can result in organizational stagnation, loss of direction, as certainly Apple experienced, and can ultimately lead to organizational failure. Today we're going to continue our new series on the, the adventures of the New Testament church. And we're going to be looking at how the core practices of the New Testament church 2,000 years ago, more or less, are still relevant in how we apply them in our cultural context today in the 21st century. And our passage is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Luke reports, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Last week we talked about the mission of the church, the one given by the risen Jesus Christ, to go to all the nations, to make disciples of all the nations, to, to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ, and to teach them to obey everything that he commanded. 
What we see in this passage today is a vision for how this early church lived the Great Commission, what it looked like in the first century to be a Great Commission church. And what we see in this passage is the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17, which we talked about three weeks ago. It's expressed by the church coming together to do four things as a body of believers. It's in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The subsequent verses in this passage, verses 43 to 47, they, they're actually explaining and exploring and illustrating what these four things looked like in the early church. And these, these four elements have been called by Chuck Swindoll the four essentials of the church. For a church to be effective, it can do more than these four things, but it can't do less and still carry out the mission it's called to do. Now, we are not called to be exactly like the first century church. It was 2,000 years ago. It was a different culture. It was a different world. So we're not called to blindly copy the things that they did. However, just as Apple, the international gigantic corporation, is radically different from Apple, the garage startup, and yet guided by those initial practices and principles that are at its core, Lake Ridge Baptist needs to be guided by this foundational vision of the church, even as we express it in a way that is appropriate and effective in 21st century Prince William County, Virginia. And so to that end, I want to look at each of these four elements of unity. The first is that we see this church learned together. According to the passage, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And and to devote themselves meant far more than just coming once a week for listening to Peter or one of the other apostles talk for 30 or 45 minutes. The early Christians were getting together almost every day, spending as much time as possible learning from these apostles who who had been around Jesus for three years and who had been given the mission. They're listening to them talk about all the things they had seen and heard and learned from Jesus. Verse 43 says that their teaching was supplemented by by miracles that are being done by the apostles. Miracles that inspired awe. And the, the the, the core word is really fear. But not in the sense of cowering, but in the sense of of respect and honor and awe and amazement at the majesty and the power of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So what does that mean to us? We certainly don't have the apostles literally standing here talking to us, though that would be pretty awesome, I think. What's up, Paul? He makes me nervous. He's so intense. I think I'd be uncomfortable. And we don't tend to have a lot of miracles going on in this part of the world, although, again, there are reports, certainly from the mission field, that the frontiers of Christianity, where the kingdom is still breaking in, there are miracle reports there. But it's less common in our, in our situation. So, so what do we have? We have the Bible, the word of God written down by the apostles. This is the apostolic teaching for us. And so as a church, we are called to devote ourselves, just as they were, 
to devote ourselves to the study and the reading and the proclamation of the teaching of the apostles, both individually and as a group, as a church. Now, devotion to the apostolic teaching, that's at the heart of our preaching ministry, whether it's, whether it's myself, Pastor Neil, uh, we've had Niall Radcliffe, many others. This is, this is at the heart. We seek or expect each week that God will be present here, and he will help us to understand what the Bible means, what it means in our life, and how to apply it effectively. And so we will always seek to glorify God by faithfully proclaiming his word as taught by the apostles. That is at the heart of what we do on Sunday morning. But there has to be more to devoting ourselves than just coming for a 30 or 45 minutes or an hour, if you count the whole worship service, once a week. We need to be actively studying the word of God. Bible study strengthens our faith, and it builds our Christ-like character. Remember, that is one of the joys and the expectations of the Christian life, is that as we walk this walk, we are made to be more and more like Jesus himself. Over time, this investment in studying the Word of God reshapes our patterns of thought, our patterns of behavior. And, and so this simple habit, just as simple as 15 minutes a day, right? you can insert a Geico commercial here, 15 minutes a day, can change your life in a very real and dramatic way as the Holy Spirit works through you. This is the primary way the Holy Spirit works in your life, is through the Word of God, to change you for the better and make you more like Jesus. But we are also repeatedly commanded in the Bible to gather together as believers, and and I think this particularly pertains to Bible study. There's so much value that comes from studying the Word together. To being together with a group of people, and some of them are, are, are way more knowledgeable and way more experienced than you are. And some of those people are less experienced and less knowledgeable. They're, maybe they have a different perspective, a, a lot of questions that, that maybe you never even realized you had. And so coming together really helps to, to sharpen and strengthen our understanding of Scripture. I would say for myself, Sunday school has been critical to my growth, my spiritual journey since we started coming here back in 2000. So if you are not yet part of a Bible study here, whether it's Sunday morning or one other day of the week, then I would ask you to take out this insert from your bulletin. It's in here. It's a trifold. I'm so impressed with Debbie. If you don't know her, she's awesome. If you do know her, tell her she's awesome. Um, I had said earlier this week, I said, hey, do you think you could put together something for the bulletin, you know, that just lists our Bible studies, what we do Sunday morning, what we do on weekdays, and, and she makes this beautiful, like, perfect trifold thing that's awesome, so I really appreciate that. But what it does, on one side it lists our Sunday morning Bible studies that meet at 10 o'clock and go until 11 o'clock. On the other side, we see Bible studies during the week. Just about every day of the week has something for women. And we've got two Bible studies for men. We've got a co-ed Bible study on Wednesday night. Youth and children have Bible study on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And so there are so many ways for our men and women and youth and children to get together to study the apostolic teaching, just as the early church did. And it has the side benefit of really making and deepening friendships. And so I would encourage you strongly, if you're not part of one of these Bible studies, 
Take a look at this list. Pick one. Commit to try it next week. Somewhere in the next week, give one of them a shot. And if it's not, it doesn't work for you, if it's not the right fit, then try another one the week after that. They are a great way to, to gather like the early Christians and devote ourselves to learn together. Now, in addition to learning together, we see that the early church loved together. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and, and the fellowship here is not talking about having donuts and hanging out. I love having donuts and hanging out. So I'm not disparaging that. It just doesn't happen to be what the fellowship means here. The fellowship here is actually referring to, or it's better explained in verses 44 and 45. It's, it's talking about their love for each other, the way they cared for each other and provided for each other when there was a need. This, of course, is what Jesus commanded to be the distinctive thing about Christians. Right? We're not supposed to be known for being shrill or obnoxious or anything else. We are to be known, first and foremost, because we love each other. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have a lot of bumper stickers. No. If you have love for one another. Verses 44 and 45 describe what that looked like for the early church. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the the proceeds to all as any had need. And we're seeing a church that loves one another so much that it is gladly providing for each other as needs arise. Now, I will say a word here, which is that this is a verse that is often misinterpreted by those who want to abuse Scripture for political purposes. And so they say, oh, look, see, Christianity says you need to be socialist, or Christianity says you need to be communist. There's a difference here. These people are sharing by choice. No one is collecting their stuff and then distributing it based on some theory of need. They are so excited and overjoyed about what they're doing that they are gladly caring for each other because they are so overjoyed about what has been given to them by God. Verse 46 has a word that is translated in the English Standard Version as glad, glad hearts. But I had to look this word up because it's not the word I'm familiar with for joy or glad. It's an uncommon Greek word. And it means extreme joy, rejoicing at what God had done in their lives. So, so these Christians were giving because they were just, their hearts were overflowing with joy and excitement about what had happened to them, about what God had done for them. You see, all their lives, these men and women had been burdened by the law, the rules of the Mosaic law. They had been burdened by by all the requirements to do every little thing right, to follow every last little bit of the law. They had to pray the right way. They had to eat the right foods. They had to make the right sacrifices. They had to say the right things at the right times of day. And for all of that, they could never have peace. They could never be 100% confident that they had done enough to please God and get into heaven. Because they knew deep in their heart 
that they were just going to sin again, make more mistakes. And they knew that since they still sinned, that a just God was going to give them exactly what they deserved, an eternity apart from him, an eternity in hell. And then Jesus of Nazareth came along, and in his suffering and death and resurrection, he brought forgiveness for everyone who calls on him as Lord and Savior. You see, the atoning death of the Son of God, the perfect and holy Savior of the world, was enough to satisfy the righteous anger of a God against whom each of them had sinned. Through faith in Christ, they immediately received eternal life. Right? They were free from the burden of the law. They were new creations in Christ. They were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so, so they could never lose the assurance of an eternity in the presence of God. So it's really no wonder that they're just overflowing with joy and gratitude. And no wonder that they began to hold more loosely to their stuff, that they're willing to give it away to those who need it as a reflection of the love of Christ that they had received. So what does that mean for us? Well, I don't think it means we have to immediately retitle all our assets, but I think it is a call to radical generosity based on joy and gratitude. Right, including a willingness, a willingness to part with material possessions to bless others, whether it's this church, whether it's our brothers and sisters in Christ, or, or whether it's ministries around the world through groups like Feed My Starving Children. And not because it's required to be a part of this church, not because it's required for salvation. That's clear. This is free. Salvation is a free gift from God. He paid. We don't pay but because we are overflowing with joy and gratitude and we want to show how grateful we are for what we received. See, like these early Christians, we too were once living in slavery to sin and to our own pitiful efforts to to try and behave right, to do the right thing and to, to please God on our own terms. We try to do the right thing, right? We always want to do the right thing. We're good people here. I'm confident on that. And yet we fail. And we failed over and over. And we tried. I'm going to do better next time. And then we failed. I'm going to do better next time. Oh, this time I got a new strategy. And we failed. Right? And even when we do the right thing for a while, there's no peace about it. There's no confidence because we know in the back of our mind The temptation is going to come again. The weak moment is going to come again. The stress is going to come again in our life, and we'll probably fail then, too. And it can never be good enough to satisfy a perfect and holy and righteous God. But like those early Christians, we have been forgiven our sins, not not just the polite little ones that we're willing to talk about, you know, in Sunday school or church or, you know, maybe at the water cooler or something like that at work. But the huge ones, the ugly ones, the terrible ones, the shameful ones, the ones we never want another human being to know. But, of course, God knows. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, he took all our guilt and all our shame on himself, even though he had done nothing wrong. 
Right? And then he rose from the dead, which proved everything he ever said about himself. And one of the things he said is that those who believe in me will not die, but will have eternal life. Forgiveness and eternal life are ours for the taking. They cost nothing for us. We just have to accept them. Then we, they're ours for the taking, and we no longer have to live in fear or in worry or in doubt about our eternal state because we are guaranteed eternity through faith in Christ. And if you don't feel extreme joy about this, I, I understand we have ups and downs. There are times in our life where it's so, so real and so tangible and that we are overwhelmed with joy. And there's other times where it's easy to take it for granted, and we maybe don't think about it very much. And I would say, if that's the case, as you do your daily Bible reading, as you pray as you reflect in the car on the way to work, think on this. Think about what you have been given by God. And I think you'll find the joy building in your heart. Right? No more guilt. No more shame. No more pattern of failure, failure, failure. Will I ever be good enough to please God? And so, as it builds, it's, it's from this gratitude, from this joy that we are so happy to give back a portion of what we have, to, whether it's to give it to the church in an offering, whether it's to, to make provision for one another in times of need. Right? So as a church, this is something we've always done extremely well, care for one another. And as we look at our vision and our future, we must never lose sight of this. We must never be hesitant to love and care for one another, even at the risk of being taken advantage of a little bit, even at the risk of being embarrassed a little bit. Because it's worth it. It's the command of Jesus, and it is the example of our spiritual forebears in the early church that we love together. Third, we see that the early church lived life together. It's summarized in verse 42 as the breaking of bread. And it's expanded in verse 46, that, Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, there's definitely a connotation here of observing the Lord's Supper. But for the most part, what we are seeing here is just what we would typically call fellowship today. right? People getting together in each other's homes and, and sharing meals together and spending time together and, and getting to know each other and, and having, sharing the good times together and sharing the bad times together. Living life together. What does this mean for us? Well, quite simply, I think it means that we need to slow down, which is hard to do in our Northern Virginia culture, right? Where anyone knows the Nova Man, it's hard for the Nova Man to slow down. We need to intentionally spend time together with one another if we're not already doing this, right? It's, as a church, we need to be encouraging and providing opportunities to spend time together. And, and I recognize that it can be a pain to figure out how to spend time together. I mean, we're accepting bookings, I think, for June to get together with people because April's already gone. May's mostly gone. I mean, it's crazy in Northern Virginia, so I get that. But that's not a discouragement. That's a call to be more intentional about this, that we make the effort 
to get together. And I, and I recognize it can be the last thing you want to do, right? You've, you've commuted all week. You go up to work. You, you work, what, 8, 10, 12-plus hours a day. Then you get stuck in traffic all the way home, and you pretty much just want to crash, put on the bunny slippers, watch some mindless TV, and, and veg out. But we're missing out. We're missing out because one of the real joys of Christian life is living life together and getting to really know one another and make friends and build friendships. This is something we should want for ourselves and for everyone else in this church because this is where we really integrate and become one in the body of Christ. So if you've been coming to Lake Ridge Baptist for a while but you don't feel well connected to other believers here, other people here, I would once again point you back to the Sunday schools and the Bible studies because really that is the easiest way to really begin living and sharing life together. That as you, as you get together on a regular basis and you're, and you're studying and you're, and you're talking and getting to know each other and then, well, you start going out to meals together, you start inviting each other to their homes. That This is the way we do ministry together and live life together. So, so if you... If you see a newcomer, right, I've said if you are a newcomer, just, just go invite yourself. Just go. Details are here. But if you see a newcomer, right, if you're here every week and you've been every, every week for years and you see somebody new, then, then invite them to join you for Sunday school. Right? The worst they can say is, well, I'm already in another Sunday school, or not this week. But invite them to... Invite them to to join in the fellowship. But I would emphasize, if you are new, don't wait for an invitation. I mean, it's great when you get an invitation, but don't wait. Just, Just go and give it a shot. So that like the early church, we can live life together. Fourth, we see that the early church prayed and worshiped together. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the prayers. And verse 46 expands on this, saying they were daily, they were attending the temple together. And, and you went to the temple to pray as a group and to, to teach and to, to worship as a group. And we see this throughout the early chapters of the book of Acts. This was really at the core of the Christian um, experience in the Jerusalem church. And, and it's worth noting, these were group activities, right? These were not Lone Ranger, American style. I'm, I got it all covered myself. I'm doing it at home, and I don't need any other Christians to do it. This was together. They prayed together. They worshiped together. The the original text specifically says that they devoted themselves with one mind in the temple. Somehow that gets shortened up a bit in the English, but that's really the essence. They devoted themselves with one mind. They weren't just going there and waiting for worship to happen. They weren't sitting back and saying, hey, give me a good worship experience. They were not going through the motions. They were throwing themselves in as one mind. You know, I felt like earlier we were were singing and we had the band and you could hear the voices throughout the congregation. It's a little glimpse into that worshiping together experience. And when it happens, it's awesome because there is a power in worshiping as a group that transcends when we worship on our own. They threw themselves into it. They were wholly devoted to worshiping as a single body of believers. So so what does that mean for us? Well, clearly we are called together to worship. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We're also called to pray as a body, right? They talked about being devoted to the prayers. 
And this is a point where I see a, a huge difference between our church and the early church. Right? We're going to talk about prayer more next week. But group prayer was such a vital and powerful part of the early church in the first century. And this is not something we do that well as a congregation. I'm, I'm just being honest. We have individuals who are tremendous people of prayer, people who I admire and I love and appreciate that they are so much better at praying than I am, and so I am glad they are praying on our team. But as a group, there is a power, and we need to have more and more of corporate prayer. Because, as you might have noticed, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle with both spiritual and cultural forces lined up against us. We're, we're trying to do new things as a church, even as we're trying to resolve old problems. And I love that. I don't like to just do one thing at a time. I like to be working on a couple things at once. But it's a challenge. And corporate prayer is an integral part of our protection and our ability to impact the community with the love of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you to find ways to become part of praying in a group. And the cool part is, prayer is something that you can do at any age and in just about any condition. So even when you are not able to do other kinds of ministry, prayer, individually, prayer as a group is something that is available. We need to be gathering often to pray, to pray for the church, to pray for our pastors, to pray for for God's Spirit to powerfully move here in the church, to pray for boldness in sharing the love of Jesus Christ to pray for revival in Prince William County, to pray for our missionaries, to pray for our church planters, and and particularly at this season, as we just did our commissioning, to be praying for the vision and purpose that God has for our church to be clearly revealed. Every Sunday night at 6, about a dozen people gather here faithfully to pray for these things. And I greatly appreciate that they are here praying for our church, lifting up our ministry. But there's plenty of room for more. And more than that, I would love to hear about groups of our our church starting little prayer groups in their homes, you know, two, three, four, five, six people praying in their homes, different days of the week, different times of day. I would love to hear about little pockets of men and women and youth and children. Again, this is open to youth and children. Anybody can pray. This is an awesome way to get involved in supporting our ministry. I would love to hear about that forming up throughout our church, praying for our church, praying for our witness and our mission. As a church, we need to be one heart and one mind when it comes to to worship and prayer. And and this is something we have an opportunity for tonight at 6 o'clock because we're having a Simply Worship service. So we will be breaking bread together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We will be praying together. We will be worshiping together. It's going to be awesome, so I would encourage you to join us here at 6. Those are the four essentials of the church, then and now, right? Learning together, loving together, living life together, praying and worshiping together. How does this togetherness fulfill the mission we have to make disciples? The teaching part, I think, follows fairly clearly from the obeying the apostolic teaching. But how does living together as a people of faith, bring people to Jesus Christ? And I think there are lots of answers, but the passage itself suggests two. 
First, when we as a church do well with these essentials, it creates something that's very, very attractive and personal in the midst of a society that is deeply impersonal. Northern Virginia is just an impersonal place. People are drawn to a church that's got this this part right because it's just so much better than having to go it alone. Right? We live in this in this region that's impersonal. We live in this time that is impersonal. I can speak from firsthand experience. I, you know, our last house, I don't think I knew the neighbors for years. I know that's on me. Right? I'm not saying that was a good thing, but that's just a reality of Northern Virginia. We don't even know our neighbors sometimes. Real community, real love and togetherness combined with dynamic teaching, that's going to draw the people who see it. And I want to contrast verse 47, which says that these Christians were having favor with all people. And by that, it's talking about people who were not Christians. They saw the beauty and the love and the unity of this early church, and they said, that's pretty amazing. The non-Christians were impressed. And I want to contrast that with the all-too-common view of Christians in America today. People who are mean, people who are spiteful, people who are hateful to non-believers, right? people who, who aren't having much fun and don't want anybody else to have much fun. That's not what we are called to be as a church. That's not the witness of the first century church. We need to be more like them, where the beauty of our fellowship just is so clear and shines out. Second point, we have the best news in the world. Right? God loves us, and he forgives our sins, and, and not just a few of them, but all of them. And it's freely available to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So, so living together, as the early church did, it creates an environment where people who don't believe that yet can come and be welcomed and be loved as they are and yet experience the apostolic teaching and, God willing, eventually come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So as we clarify our vision and our purpose as a church, I pray that that would be part of it, that we would be that environment that is like this community, that is welcoming those who are new believers and welcoming those who are not yet believers to the apostolic teaching and the fellowship. When we're faithful with these things and we provide a rich community of learning and loving and living and worshiping and prayer, then, then we enjoy the full benefits and blessings of the Christian life. And, and believe me, these things are not a burden. Right? This is the joy of being a Christian. But more than that, we create the environment where God may provide the increase, as he did to the Jerusalem church. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And I pray that that would be true here at Lake Ridge Baptist Church. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the example of the Jerusalem church. And I pray now as we embark on seeking your will and vision for our church that you would help us to apply the lessons of the early church so that we too can find the way that is right for our community in our time to learn together, to live together, to love together, and to pray and worship together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We've heard the mission that was given to the early church. And we've seen now a vision of Great Commission living. If you want to be a part of that, your first step is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
So if you're ready to embrace him as your Lord and Savior, then as we start to sing, come to the front. Likewise, if you are already a believer, but you feel that Lakers Baptist Church is the community of believers you want to be a part of, that you want to unite with, then I would invite you to the front as we start to sing. <laughs>